Jonah 4, 1 to 11. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease the discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at at dawn the next day, the Lord provided a worm, which chewed up the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided, provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But the Lord God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there were more than a hundred and twenty thousand people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Well, good morning everyone. Leave it you leave your Bibles open there. My name's James. If I haven't met you, um, this is your first time here. It's great to have you here, and it'd be great to get to know you after the service if we get a chance to meet. Come and make yourself known to me. I'd love to say hi. Um, we're doing our sermon. It's our final, ser- final sermon in Jonah. Um, it's been great. I've been so convicted and so challenged uh, by this book. But it's a small book, isn't it? It's a small book with a very big message that actually pierces our hearts. But there's one thing that I find really interesting is as I read children's Bibles, as you go through the children's section, you read the children's Bible, as I go through our Bible selection at home of children's Bibles, guess what chapter is never there? You have Jonah and the big fish, but actually, I don't know whether I've actually found a children's Bible that has Jonah chapter 4 in it. I wonder why. Because it's actually a really difficult chapter. But I want to ask us a question today. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Here's the first one. Where do you draw the line in the sand. Where do you draw the line in the sand? That's enough. That's far enough. Or another question is, how do you feel? How do you feel about God's mercy towards those who have done wrong to you? How do you feel about God's mercy towards those who have done, maybe it's small or maybe it's actually a really, really wrong thing? How do you feel about that? A few years ago, I went to the movie theatres with a couple of friends and we went to go and watch the movie American Sniper. And I've watched the the movie, I've read the book, I've read the other book. It's very interesting, but there's this scene, this opening scene in the movie of American Sniper. American Sniper is about a man called Chris Kyle. He's a Navy SEAL. He's the best sniper we've ever had, or America's ever had. And there's this opening scene where he's he's protecting the, the, the Americans as they come down the street. 
It's after 9-11 and they're fighting terrorism. And, and as the Americans are coming down the street, he's looking through his scope and he sees out of the corner of this building, a mum comes out. A mum walks out of this building and her son is with her. The son could be about eight, nine or ten. And Chris is thinking to himself, what's going to happen here? The mum walks out, the troops sort of think, what do we do here? And the next thing you see in the scope is the most horrific thing you'd ever think you would see. The mother opens up and grabs a bomb and gives it to a son and says, go and run towards them. Surely that's the line, isn't it? Where is that line in the sand? Surely justice should prevail. In, in, in Jonah, we, we have the city of Nineveh. It's one of the... It's the Great city, it's an evil city. Assyria were the well known, they were the, the known world power of its day, and they did horrible things. They skinned, they burnt, they were horrible to other nations. Where is the line in the sand? But last week in chapter three, we see that Jonah goes and he preaches the word of God, and, and the word of God humbles this great city and they relent, they repent, and then God relents. They turn from their evil. In verse 10, what do we read? When God saw what they did and how they turned, repentance is turning from their behavior of their evil ways, God relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, I don't know about you, but you'd be expecting at this point that Jonah would be, woo, let's run back to Israel with a bit of excitement and happiness because probably the greatest revival has ever happened to go back and tell his brothers and his sisters and, and the people of God, guess what happened when I preached the word of God? And so when we come to chapter 4, verse 1, it's actually quite confronting. Have a look. It's not, it's not that kind of reaction. What kind of reaction is it? But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. It's, he burned with anger. Point one, resenting mercy Literally, verse 1 says, This displeased Jonah with great displeasure, and it angered him. He burned with anger. Or another way is in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Jonah, God says that the great evil of Nineveh has come up before me, and now Jonah says, It's a great evil that you've done this. And he burned with anger. And, and we get an insight now to why Jonah ran from God. We get an insight to why he ran away and what his reasoning was. We've been sort of holding out. And verse 2 says, he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Why? Because I knew that you are a gracious, it's, it's undeserved love, undeserved gift. That you're a, you're a gracious God, you're a compassionate God, like a mum towards her child. You're slow to anger. It means God's long in the, in the nose. You know, a Hebrew expression is you're short in the nose, right? Because it means you get angry quick. But God is slow to anger. He's patient and long-suffering, but he's also abounding in love. What a wonderful description of Exodus 34 verse 6. What a wonderful reminder of God's attributes, his love, his grace, his, his mercy. And it's interesting though, it's, it, he's, he's quoted well, but he's actually left something out. He's, he's read part of Exodus 34, he's reminded of God's mercy and God's grace, 
But see, here he is, he's resenting mercy. He's resenting that Nineveh have received mercy because they didn't receive justice. But actually in Exodus 34, we can all do it as well, can't we? We can pluck verses out of the Bible and forget the context around it. Because the verse goes on, Yahweh doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. See, God does not leave the guilty unpunished. And we too can forget that God is the God of true justice. That God actually does see everything. He sees every one of our sins. He knows everything that we have done. And that's why we, can, we wrestle with this concept of mercy and justice. Because how can God be a good God if he doesn't show justice, right? If God is a good God, then he is a just God. And therefore, he has to serve justice. It's not that God is a good God that he shows mercy to us and therefore he just swipes our sin under the table. It's not that he can just cover it up. No, no, God has to deal with sin and the way he deals with sin is he'll bring about true justice. He will bring about judgment. So how can we wrestle with this concept of mercy and justice at the same time? Well, we, we look to the gospel. We look to the cross where at the cross we see both God's mercy and God's justice both there in that moment see all of us deserve to pay for our sin it's not that God just forgives us and covers it up no 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 no. God he he pours the justice and judgment that we were due on his son Jesus at the cross therefore we've been shown mercy and God is just so we, we live in the end times. We live in the time between the ascension of Christ and his return. So for us who are Christians here today, who are in Christ Jesus, we've received mercy and the judgment and the justice for our sin has been put on Christ. And so God hasn't shoved it under the carpet. No, no, Christ paid for it. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, one day Jesus is going to return and Revelation 21 reminds us that he's going to come as a judge. And everything you have done will be paid for and you will pay for it. God will judge you. Does this make sense? How can God be both just and merciful at the same time for us as Christians? He's not overlooking our sin. He just puts our sin on Christ. But when you turn to Christ and trust in Christ, you go from being under God's judgment to being showed God's mercy. Resenting mercy. See, Jonah's resenting that Nineveh's been shown mercy. We get impatient with God's justice, can't we? Forgetting that God is patient with waiting for people to repent. We see that in 2 Peter. He is patient in waiting for people to repent. And God was patient with us so that we would repent. Resenting mercy. He's just got, no, you cannot forgive Nineveh. You cannot relent. There's a story of the prodigal son a parable that Jesus tells about a young, boy, a young man who goes to his dad and says, give me all your money, give me my share of my inheritance, I'm over this place, I'm going to go and do and live however I want to live. And so his dad gives him everything. And he goes away and sex, drugs, rock and roll, prostitutes, the whole lot. He just, he, he just brings disrepute to the name. He does all these terrible things. He squanders all of his inheritance. And so he finds himself in a pigsty going, man, my dad's servants get fed better than me. 
And so he goes home and he goes home and we see this picture in Luke 15 where the father, he runs with his open arms to the son and embraces his son, forgives him, puts the fattened calf on, puts a big party on. And we rejoice and we think, what a wonderful story. But actually, we often forget the rest of the story. We actually forget the older brother. We often picture ourselves as the prodigal son when actually as Christians, we often need to picture ourselves as the older brother. So this older brother goes to his dad and says, how dare you do this? I've been here my whole life. I've served you. I've done wonderful things. And yet you've done nothing for me. See, he despises. He actually resents the mercy that his dad's shown his younger brother because he's self-righteous. And so he goes away angry and resentful. And Jonah is like, after all they have done, after all the Assyrians have done, how dare you relent? Jonah's resting with mercy and justice. They should have justice served, not mercy. And I think one of the, I think one of the, the complexities of this passage is it's, it's what, what's his reason? And I think one of the reasons is he's patriotic. He's showing tribalism. He's showing nationalism. See, while I was still at my home, while I was still in my country, God, I knew you would do this. See, in 2 Kings, we see that during Jonah's time, the city, the, the, the country of Israel, the borders increase. Politically, they become stronger. They're becoming a wonderful place. And there's this sense of, well, God, we're your chosen people. Jonah is hoping that God shares his same value as a child of God, that it's only the Israelites, it's only the Jews. He's tribal. He's going, it's, no, no, it's, it's, it's about us people. And one pastor, he quotes, he says, he writes, Jonah's particular national identity was more foundational to his self-worth than his role as a servant of God of all nations. Do you see that? His particular ethnicity, his race was more important to him and more foundational to his self-worth than his role as a servant of God to go to the nations. And when that happens in our lives, we miss mercy and compassion. That we can be so tied up in our worth as an Aussie that we value that more than others and that it leaves us resentful that they've received mercy. We can do that, can't we? Our ethnicity or our national... It's, I was just reflecting, I think, you know, you just look back to the last couple of years and the elections in the America, right? Controversial, Donald Trump. But didn't we see nationalism and patriotism play out there among Christians? And I wonder, as Christians in Australia, do we sometimes allow our patriotism and our tribalism to become our self-worth and our identity rather than Christ. So that we, and what happens when we do that? What do we do? Without us realising we find our self-worth in our nationalism or our ethnicity, in the moments we find our value and self-worth in that, guess what we do? We draw a line in the sand. We put a line there and go, sorry. But as we understand God's heart, we can't draw a line in the sand resenting mercy 
Jonah, it's so bizarre. It's interesting, isn't it? In Jonah chapter 1 and 2, Jonah in chapter 2 is so thankful that he's been rescued. He's actually thankful he didn't have to pay the crime that he did. God has brought him up from the great pit. And then in chapter 4, he's burning hot. Literally, he's getting hot because Nineveh haven't paid for their sin. Look at verse 3. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Better to die than to live. He's, sorry, I can't, I can't handle that. I can't actually, in a way, saying, I can't forgive those people. There's a, there's a parable, another parable in Matthew 18 of, of a king and a, and, a, and a man who, the man, the, the king decides to himself, it's time to settle all the scores. And so this man owed this man, a tr- literally what the passage is saying is a trillion dollars, right? He owes this man a trillion dollars, which basically means he can never pay it back. And the king says, I'm going to sell your children, I'm going to sell your wife, I'm going to do this to settle the debt. He can't pay it. But the man pleads with the king and says, please, please, please. What's the king do? The king sends him away and says, it's all okay. The debt is settled. It's been paid. And so you can go. And so this man goes away. And he decides, I've got to settle some scores. And another person owes him about four months' wages. Even though he owed this man a trillion dollars, the king, now he owes this man four months' wages. And what's he do? He says, you're going to pay for it. I'm going to lock you up. And you're going to dun, 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 dun. And the king finds out and just goes, hang on, look how much I cleared your debt. And yet you're not willing to clear such a small debt of someone else. And as Christians, as we look at ourselves and be reminded of our depth of our own sin and what Christ did on the cross by erasing that debt how can we not forgive others such a smaller debt (laughs) but that can be hard though can't it because some things are really really terrible look at verse 4 God asks him a question. Is it right for you to be angry? We don't get a verbal answer, do we? But we get some actions that really tell us the depths of his heart. And so we go from resenting mercy to now he's actually resenting justice. He has this dummy spit in verse 5. It's a bit like a teenager. You know, as adults, we, we have dummy spits. We just do it in our head and not show other people. But teenagers will show their parents. It's like, I know you're not going to say yes for me going out to this party on Friday night. I know you're not going to say yes for me going to the footy. But you still ask it. And mum and dad say no. And so you have a dummy spit. And you get angry and annoyed. And what do teenagers sometimes do? What have I done as a teenager? I'm going to pack up my gear, mum. And I'm going to walk out the house, I'm going to leave, and I'll go look after myself because you're just so unfair. It's manipulation, isn't it? Because they're not really thinking that, they're just trying to get their way. And so what does Jonah do? Well, I'm going to head outside the city, verse 5. God had gone, Jonah had gone out and he sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter. Now, you don't need to make yourself a shelter if you're going to spend an hour or two outside the city. Jonah's going out there to sit there and wait. He wants to see what's going to happen next. Surely... Justice will win the day. Surely the Ninevites who have turned from their evil ways will turn back. And if they do turn back, guess what's going to have to happen? 
God, we better make sure you show justice then. And then we get to verse 6 to 10 where we're all going we're gonna to learn an object in God's mercy. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord, God, provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah. Now, God in chapter 1, he appointed a fish. Here, he appoints a leafy plant for two reasons, for two purposes. To give shade, or another way to say it is to serve Jonah. To, that's the first reason, to give him shade for his head. And then to ease his discomfort, or another way is to ease his misery or to deliver him from his evil. And what's Jonah's response? Jonah was, he's pumped. He's happy. He's joyful. He's excited. Literally, it's Jonah rejoiced over the vine with great joy. He's rejoiced and had more joy over that vine, over that leafy plant, than verse 10 of chapter 3. Do you notice that? He's got more joy and more rejoicing over a leafy plant than over verse 10 of chapter 3. His happiness is brought about by a plant. And we get to verse 7. But at dawn the next day, here we go, God, he, you know, he, he points a fish, right? He points this amazing fish. But here he's going to appoint a worm. Like, imagine that picture. It's amazing, isn't it? Like, I don't even know how you get a worm to do that. But it's God. So he appoints a worm to go and chew the, chew the plant. God provided a leaf. Um, verse 7. At dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so it withered. And so when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. So he, he's, he's very joyful when he's received mercy. He's received the leafy plant. But now in the next verse, there's a contrast. He's going to receive justice. But when he receives justice, he's not too happy. He's happy for other people to receive justice, but not for himself. And when he receives justice, he resents it. Have a look at the end of verse 8. He wanted to die. It'd be better for me to die than to live. It's just, it seems ironic. It seems irrational. Like in chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord. He's been brought up from the pit, from the lowest point. Like he's been brought, in a way, back to life. And now, two chapters later, is I want to die again. I'd rather die than see these people shown mercy. It's hard, isn't it? Justice and mercy. It's a difficult one, isn't it? We're happy to receive mercy, but he's resentful that they've received mercy. But we, we resent justice when it's done to us, but we want justice given to, to other people. I was um, reflecting on this this morning and I thought to myself, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was watching a game of soccer, um, watching my boys play. It's fun watching kids play, watching my seven-year-old play in, in, his, in his side. And this day, it was starting to get a little bit annoying as a parent on the sideline. Um, there was this kid. So supposedly in soccer, you can't push other kids, right? You can't do this. So this one big kid, like he was tall for his age, every time someone else had the ball and he couldn't get it off them, he would just go, push the kids over. 
It was doing it all the time. And there was this moment in the game where my son Finley's running along and doing the ball and he couldn't get it off him. So he just pushed my son and he went, bam, down. Now the boy responded well. He dusted himself up, got up and kept going. But as a parent, I was like, ref, did you see that? Because it just kept going. Where is the justice in that? And another parent saw it again. It's like, where's the justice in that moment? Now, 30 seconds out from the game ending, this kid that had been pushing everyone, tripped. Another kid tripped him. And he went flat down. And he cried and he wouldn't get up. It's like... <laughs> the kids, these seven-year-olds come in and the coach comes to them and says, you shouldn't have been doing that, but man, justice was served. But as I reflect on that, I, I, I think to myself, but if that was my son, I'd want mercy shown. He's learning the game, and it, it's easy, isn't it, to be going, oh, I want justice served for other people, but if it's for me or my family, I want them to be shown mercy. Because, see, when you think more on the sin of others, this is what Paul Tripp says when you think more on the sins of others than on your own, you're in spiritual trouble, which leads to irrational self-righteous behaviour. See, Jonah thinks he's more righteous. I'm a better player. He's happy to receive mercy and for others to receive justice. But knowing the cross of Christ and knowing the mercy that we have been shown because of the depth of our sin and that slate being wiped clean, how can we not show mercy to others? As Christians, that we can often go, you know, someone does wrong by me. And so maybe there's been forgiveness, maybe there's been the apology, but yet you go, you know what, I'm going to make sure I make your life miserable for you. I'm going to give you the cold shoulder. I'm going to send some messages that aren't nice. I'm going to just sort of ignore you in public or at, at church because I just want you to make sure you know how much I'm disgusted and that you need to receive justice for what you've done. But when it's on your foot, you, you, you want to make sure you receive mercy. And it's in those moments we forget the gospel of Christ. Because we're just like Jonah. We head outside the great city. We head outside the city to watch in anticipation, don't we? We often watch hoping that others will stuff up. Hoping that they will turn and do wrong again. Stuff up and that they'll be condemned and that true justice will come. And we will seek anything to bring it about as long as they pay for what they have done. But Jesus, see Jonah heads out east, out of the will of God. But, but Jesus, he, he heads outside the city of Jerusalem, carrying a cross. And he walks to Calvary and he's crucified so that we wouldn't have to face the condemnation of God and where true justice would be served. That's the beauty of the gospel. Even though we'll often go outside the city to, to mock, Jesus went outside the city to save us. And what is God's response to Jonah? Will he... Well, actually, have a look at... Jonah's really angry. Like, look at verse 9. 
God says, is it right for you to be angry about the plan? Right? God's asking this question. Now hear this right. God isn't asking the question because he doesn't know the answer to it. God's asking a question to pierce the depths of Jonah's heart and to pierce our heart and to ask us that question. Is it right, though, for you, Jonah, to be angry about the plant? What's his answer? Sure is. I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. His anger is so intense, it says. See, he resents mercy when others receive it, and he resents justice when he receives it. Do you see that? See, the plant, in that moment, he received mercy, but then when the plant was gone, he received justice. He just, I just don't like it either way. And that brings us to point three, resent, resenting concern. Now, I know that doesn't make sense, but just for the sake of the three points flowing, it was going to be resentful concern, but I just went with resenting concern because the rest of the points are resenting. So you're just going to have to deal with that, those English teachers out there. But point three, resenting concern. See, verses 10 and 11 are a contrast. Have a look at God's answer. You have been concerned about this plant though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprung up overnight and died overnight. See, Jonah had a deep-rooted concern for the leafy plant. He is so troubled and distressed that the plant is no longer there. See, the word for concern there is pity. He's troubled by it that he no longer has this plant. It's no longer there. And yet it's just a plant, isn't it? We have plants in our gardens. We have roses. We have citrus trees. And yet he's become so concerned about a plant, so consumed by it that he's actually missed the bigger picture. See, in this story, we can get so bogged down in life that we get the small picture of the leafy plant, and yet we're so consumed by ourselves that we miss the bigger picture of what God's actually concerned about. Jonah's concerned about a leafy plant, but what is God concerned about? Verse 11, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? In which, now, this is one leafy plant. Here, God says, but there's more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. What is God concerned about? It's, it's not that these Ninevites are dumb, that they don't know the left and the right hand. They're actually very intelligent people, sophisticated, well-reasoned. They were the world power for a reason, right? He's not saying that they're, they're, they're cognitively unable to know. No, no, what it's saying is they're just ignorant of God. They're ignorant of their sin. They're ignorant of the culture of sin. They're actually unaware of God. They don't know any better because they're living in sin. They don't know any more better because they're dead in their sin and they've got no idea who the God of the universe is. They don't know who I am, that I'm abounding in love, slow to anger. And Jonah is saying, this plant, this plant, my comfort, my happiness, and my sense of what I think justice is, is more valuable to me than the souls of 120,000 people. I love my comfort, and I love, I love my comfort 
more than I love your plan of redemption for the world. Jonah, who sits east of the city and doesn't shed tears, he doesn't weep. But we see Jesus who, who enters Jerusalem weeping because they do not know what they do. And so, how does Jonah respond to these words? How does Jonah respond to this contrast about what concerns you? Have a look there at verse 12. There is no verse 12, is there? It's sort of, as you read, you're expecting verse 12 to be there. What is Jonah going to do? It's, it's like a musical arrangement when we sing that doesn't end. It's sort of on a minor and, and you're expecting it to, to conclude. It's like a movie that gets cut short 20 minutes and you don't know what happens to the love couple that have been destroyed. Are they going to come back? We, we read Jonah and we, we read it like that, anticipating to go, what does Jonah do next? What happens to Jonah next? And you think, to yourself, I wonder if the, they just lost the manuscript. They lost a couple of verses. And we can sit here and we think, what happens to Jonah? What happens to Jonah? What happens next? But oh, no, no, the, the narrator of this book of Jonah actually does this on purpose. It's narrative. They've left it out for a reason. A reason so that you and me don't go, what happens to Jonah? But it leaves it open so that you bring yourself into this story. How do you respond to verse 10 and 11? How do you respond to actually the whole book of Jonah itself? What concerns you? What concerns you? It's one of those crazy moments where we think to ourselves, Jonah, how could you do this in light of all that you've been through? It's irrational, Jonah. It's absurd that he would rather die and show more concern for a leafy plant while not at the same time caring for 120,000 souls for eternity, eternal souls who live in Nineveh. It's absurd, isn't it, that he'd be more concerned about a leafy plant. And yet, every day, you and me get consumed by the little plants in our life. We get consumed by the little nothing plants while the millions around us don't know the mercy of God. Is your finely manicured lawn and your citrus trees of more concern to you? Are you more concerned and troubled by having to wear a face mask today and not being able to sing while six million people in Sydney have no idea they're left from their right? Are you more concerned for your house and your lifestyle, for you, what you eat and how you keep healthy? Or maybe are you more concerned about the image, the style and the approval of others? Are you, are you shattered, and, are you shattered and, and upset about losing a job or taking a pay cut and you weep while we don't weep for the souls that don't know Christ? And that's, 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 that's idols, isn't it? 
That's what idols do, right? Idols capture us and they make us focus in on them. They make, us, they make them the centre of our life, whether it's our house or our citrus tree or our family. They make that the centre of our life that they become so consuming that we will die for them. We will literally either die or we will die for everything else so that we can have those things. If it was stripped from you, how would you respond? Whatever it is that would be stripped from you and you burn up in anger, that will tell you what your idol is. What makes you roll up like Jonah? It could be a good chance that's something that you're struggling with. But isn't the book of Jonah a book of grace and scandalous mercy that even in the midst of what Jonah was doing, God stripped those things from him so that he could see the bigger picture. Because see, for us, we get so self-consumed in our little world of James McCleary that we need the book of Jonah to strip us of that little world so that we are brought into the heavenlies so that we see a bigger plan and a bigger picture, the plan of God's redemption from Genesis to the book of Revelation. Where we see through an angry runaway, we see the merciful God who pursues And so that as we do that, it takes our eyes off us and places them on the bigger picture. What concerns you? What concerns you? See, we've we've covered four chapters of Jonah. We've seen a runaway Jonah. We've seen relentless grace. We've seen scandalous mercy. But we've also seen someone who had resentful concern. What, What concerns you? What I'm going to do is I'm going to to apply it three ways for us today. One of the ways. Because what does verse 12 look like? Because there is no verse 12. I want to ask that question. If you're here today, I want to apply it to you if you're not not a Christian. So what's your story going to be? How's the book of Jonah going to end in your life? As you place yourself at the end of it. If If you're not a Christian here today, it means that when Jesus returns, you will face justice and judgment. Because Jesus is coming back and God cannot let sin go unpaid for. But there is the gospel, whereas you can have mercy and grace today if you trust in Christ. And that justice and that judgment will have been put on Christ and today you receive mercy and grace. What's verse 12 going to look like for you today? But I wonder what's verse 12 going to look like for us on an individual basis as followers of Christ? As Christians, I think there's a couple of ways we can respond, can't we? One way to respond to verse 11 and 10 and to finish the story is that we, we go around and go, it serves them right. That we, we look at ourselves as we walk down the street and we mock and laugh and go, I'm so glad I'm not like them. You, just, you pass someone with a head covering. You pass someone with some tattoos, you pass someone of a different skin colour and you think to yourself, I'm so glad I'm not like that and I've made better decisions than them in my life. That's one way we can respond as Christians. Or are we going to respond as followers of Christ who have been rescued? That as we plummet the depths of the gospel and understand who Jesus is and what God has done and the grace that is in our lives that he has cancelled our debt... That helps us finish verse 12. 
Because as we are reminded at the cross, as we look at the world around us and God says they don't know their left hand from their right hand, as we as Christians, we look to the cross of Christ, we see Jesus from the cross of Christ saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And each one of us in that room were once those people who did not know what we were doing. But now we've been forgiven. And so we forgive, we show mercy, we respond like Christ and we have no line in the sand. There is no line in our lives for that. But I wanted to ask the question though for us as a church, how does TBC end Jonah? How do we end it? Maybe we may end it with our small little pew where we sit that you're consumed and concerned about. Maybe it's a concern for a building. Maybe it's, you know, as churches get distracted by the colour of chairs and the colour of carpet that wasn't picked that you wanted picked. We can get consumed and, and concerned about little leafy plants like that. Or we can be concerned about what concerns God. What about our story? How will it end? Will we be ready to show mercy and grace? Will we be a church that's actually quick to forgive each other? Not to hold it against one another and say, you're going to pay me back. But may we know that we've been forgiven a trillion times over and what they've done is absolutely nothing in comparison to what I've done to God. May our story be one where we have a concern for the dying souls that are around us. A church where there is no line in the sand. A church where we're not concerned about the trivial things of life, but concerned about souls who need to hear of the mercy of God. In February eight, um, on February 18th, 1952, off Cape Cod in America, there was, a, there was a tanker called the T2 Tanker SS Pendleton. And the storm was so big, the waves were so big, that this tanker split in half. One part sunk, but the other half was floating. And it did this off, off Cape Cod. Not many people knew what had happened. No one really knew that this ship was out there, but somehow the Coast Guard's somehow worked out that this ship had broken in half. And there was a man called Bernie Webster. Bernie Webster was a coast guard. And his, his captain said, well, you better go out there and find that boat. Now, he was in a 36-foot boat, a really small boat that wasn't capable of going out into that storm. And as he's getting on that boat with a couple of other men to go out and try and rescue this the men that are on board this ship. Um, men around him as they're hopping said, mate, Bernie, why don't you just go out a little bit and then tell the captain you couldn't get through the breakwater and then turn back because there's no chance you're going to get through the breaker. Because at, 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 for him to get out, there was these breakwaters that on a calm day, they were huge, let alone on a stormy day where it was impossible to get through. He pulls up to the breakers and he's got to back off on the throttle, increase the throttle, just to time it to somehow get through or over that wave before it breaks on top of the boat. Sometimes he would get over it, sometimes he'd go through it. By the time he got through it, his compass was broken. And the men with him said, turn back. 
We can't do it. And Bernie says, I can't. While there's men out there. And if somehow he had the ability to work the currents of the water and to know where he was, and they found the tanker. And they turn up. This is a boat that can fit 10 people on it. 10 people can fit on this boat. They turn up and they see a couple of blokes on deck and they're cheering, we've found the boat. But in after about another minute, they realised there was over 30 men on board that boat. And the people with Bernie said, we can't do it, we can only take 10 people with us. That's all we're allowed. And Bernie says, no, we can take more. They said, well, why don't we just put 20 men on board and let's just turn around, take them back and then somehow come back and rescue me. He says, no, we cannot. There's no line in the sand. There's no line that we, we're going to get all of them or I die. And so what he does, they, they battle the waters and they go in because a boat can break and they battle the waters and one bloke jumps on, they go out and they keep doing this till all 32 men are on board this boat that is undersized and they are crowded, they're uncomfortable and he just said, I'm not going to give up. That boat was crowded but those 32 men were saved. May we be a church that's not a cruise liner where we sip our cocktails and enjoy our own little world that's self-absorbed, but may we be a rescue boat packed full, concerned about the nation's Concerned that they don't even know their left hand from their right hand, who are in desperate need of God's mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have taught us in Jonah. Humble us by the gospel, we pray. Father, may we not be consumed by our own idolatry, our own selfish gain but have hearts that are concerned like you. Father, thank you that we don't have to face your judgment because Christ faced it for us. And therefore, as we go out this week, we can show mercy and we can forgive because you've forgiven us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.